This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 25th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. You might wonder why White Claw, the official boozy, low-carb beverage of summer, took so long to arrive. Well, the answer appears to be tax laws. Cato's Will Yateman comments. Josh Barrow wrote uh, this article at uh, New York Magazine, How Tax Policy Gave Us White Claw. And I guess I had an inkling that this was true because you can't really go out and buy uh, vodka soda or gin and tonic in a can. I mean, it's it's technically possible to uh, purchase those things, but they're uh, regulated in such a way that it it's not palatable for a lot of companies to produce them. But White Claw is different. Indeed, it is. Uh, it takes advantage. Or let me put it this way. The tax disparity of which you just spoke has long been uh, uh, a very much interest to beer manufacturers. That is to say, it's sort of the, the holy grail of, of beer production is to get a drink that tastes like a mixed liquor drink, but is nonetheless brewed like a beer, and thereby you gain this beneficial tax policy. That's why in the past we've had beverages like uh, more recently, Mike's Hard Lemonade, but um, from my my youth, we had the Zimas of the world. Um, the problem was evidently, and I've actually never had a Zima nor a Mike's Hard Lemonade, but because they're brewed like beers, they taste like beer. <laughs> so you know, when you're when you're shooting for a mixed drink, but it tastes like beer, that's perhaps inimical to sales. The White Claw breakthrough, um, sort of the holy grail of this taking advantage of this this. Uh, disparity in tax treatment between canned liquor and, and canned beer is that it's not fermented from grains like beer and like the Zimas, these other alternative beverages of the past. Instead, it's distilled from, or I'm sorry, it's fermented from sugar, which gives it this uh, flavorless quality, much like a vodka soda. Um, so it's 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 a combination of of one the incentive provided by this wacky arbitrary I'll argue tax policy, um, and then two the, the this technological breakthrough if you will whereby um, we're brewing the drink from sugar as opposed to grains and um, thereby it, it doesn't taste like beer. So but it, as a result, it's it's become um, this craze this uh, it's associated with millennials. I'll say this, however. I do wonder, um, you know, the extent to which this is a millennial fad, if you will. I do wonder the extent to which, if there were not this arbitrary uh, disparity between canned liquor and can canned beer, whether or not people wouldn't have been enjoying this sort of drink, you know, for for decades. Um, you know, does it necessarily have to be a millennial fad? Could this just be? It, it's a good product that. There was no or less of an incentive to put it on the market for so long due to this sort of silly tax policy. Yeah. Uh, another difference, though, uh, a key difference, I think, between Zima, Smirnoff Ice, and Mike's Hard Lemonade, aside from the flavor, is uh, the number of calories and carbohydrates specifically in the product. Uh, White Claw advertises boldly as much as, as the other uh, Truly or Bon and Vive, the, uh, I believe, the uh, Anheuser-Busch products that is also a canned uh, spiked uh, club soda, very low in calories, two grams of carbohydrates per uh, serving. That is amazing. Wow. I mean, I'll say I had never heard of this product um, until you, you put it on my radar in advance of, of this podcast. I asked uh, our household millennial expert, my wife, about it. 
Um, and she she raved about it. She says that everyone she knows is drinking it. Um, I, I did a little research online. Unbelievably, this stuff evidently outsold Budweiser in America last July, um, which blows my mind. I mean, it's, its market share has been exploding of late. Um, it says here, what, it's, it's now a billion-dollar industry. Sales surpassed $1 billion, uh, for the first time last year. That was a 200% increase over the previous year. And they're projecting a 300% increase this year. There's actually a, a nationwide shortage of, of White Claw. It's being reported as the nation uh, we've been declawed. Um, and it's causing some sort of uh, some degree of consternation amongst its regular drinkers. But um, this is a cultural phenomenon about which I was unaware. Um, it's pretty interesting. But it's also a, a nice thing to see in the marketplace. That is, uh, in general, markets respond to incentives. Producers respond to incentives. Consumers respond to incentives. And to say that this in innovation was created by tax policy is not that's not an overstatement. On the one hand, yes, uh, people respond to incentives, self-interested actors, and that, that's certainly um, uh, a tenet we believe in um, here. On the other hand, I will note, as I said at the outset, um, this is a, a success story of innovation in the face of these incentives provided by this, this arbitrary tax policy. But one does wonder, at least I wonder, whether or not we could have been enjoying White Claw-like drinks um, for decades. Um, that is to say, if we had been allowed to toss vodka and soda into a can, uh, make the alcohol content about 5%, you know, about that like beer, and then sell them in six-packs. Um, so I do wonder, as I understand it, there sort of is no difference between that, between doing just that, making a, a vodka soda in a can that tastes just like, if not better, than White Claw. So um, on, on the one hand, this is great. I'm glad that, that this innovation occurred, that, that a lot of people are enjoying this White Claw. On the other hand, I, I think it's, uh, I, I sort of regret the fact that we, we perhaps could have been enjoying this for decades had not this sort of silly, arbitrary distinction in the tax policy between canned vodka sodas at 5% you know, per volume alcohol and, and uh, non-liquor-based <laughs> uh, canned vodka-like, <laughs> vodka soda-like drinks. This was a market that was uh, dominated for the most part by beer. This is a new entrant that competes with beer on a, on a metric that beer has been trying to compete on for a while now. Michelob Ultra is a very low-carbohydrate beer, but of course, it's still beer. It still tastes like beer, arguably. Um, um, but you would expect that would-be producers of, uh, let's say, bourbon and Coke or, um, you know, gin and tonic or that sort of thing to go into a can would say, hey, why why are these guys getting to do this thing? Why why can't we do it? We've been waiting out here in the wilderness selling these big bottles of liquor. We'd love to sell 12 packs. And I, I wonder what kind of um, impetus this might create for a regulatory change. Well, I mean, I'll note this. That sounds delicious. I mean, whereas I, I, I don't really have much interest in one of these white claws, I, I kind of do have an interest in a six pack of uh, bourbon and Coke. Um, with respect to other companies getting in the game, I do have a little research tidbit on that that I, that I discerned um, in advance of this podcast. This craze is not gone unnoticed um, by the, the brewers of the world. And indeed, they're hopping on this train. And, and this one in particular, um, so Anheuser-Busch, their big response to, to the White Claw phenomenon, um, they're targeting a college-age audience with 
and this is no joke, natural light seltzer. <laughs> I mean, that just sounds repulsive. Um, but, you know, God willing, uh, the, the good people at Anheuser-Busch, you know, this is a hot product. But, um, wow, that's the, the direction that competition is taking. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if we have any Natty Light fans in, in our audience, but, um, you know, please check it out. Natural Light Seltzer, soon in a grocery store near you. I, I also think Miller Coors and La Colombe are uh, planning to come out with a hard coffee. Oh, all right. In a can, which which is a wonderful transition if uh, you exist solely on uppers and downers. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a nice transition beverage for the middle of the day to switch from coffee to alcohol. <laughs> well, they've, they've a full day's worth of nutrition. It's a, but you know, in in lar- more broadly, though, uh, we've seen this kind of thing happen before. There's a reason why there's a thirty minute. Uh, recording limit. I don't know the exact details, but for DSLRs, the digital cameras uh, that also record video, there's a record, there's a hard limit on being able to record uh, onto DSLRs. And part of that is driven by tax policy. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we look outside um, the United States, I mean, I know for a fact that um, energy policy used to be my bailiwick, that uh, in response to tax incentives in uh, northern China, that they built um, hundreds of megawatts worth of wind turbines that that were spinning and thereby engendering the tax credits, but that weren't actually connected to the grid. I mean, they were they, they were um, you know the, the 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 tax credit was given merely for you know the the wheels spinning, um, not for actually you know electricity used. So. Uh, even to absurd links, people, you know, wouldn't you, wouldn't you know it, they respond to incentives. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 